God of life, you raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. And so God, we ask that you would send your spirit now to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. Amen. Amen. Well, when I started kind of reflecting on this space between Good Friday, the day of Jesus' death, and today, Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection, I was struck by one word kept coming back over and over, and that word was silence. For three long and agonizing days, God appeared to be silent. And so in the Catholic Church, some people observe a period of three hours of silence on Good Friday for the hours that Jesus hung on the cross. Church bells and church organs, although we don't have those things here in this space, those things are silent all over the world from Maundy Thursday, which is a day that kind of commemorates Jesus' Last Supper with the disciples, to today, Easter Sunday. And there are a few things in life that are uh, as terrorizing to some people as silence, complete and total silence. And so I found that we even have a word for the fear of silence. It's called sedatophobia. I didn't even know that. And millions of people, people actually suffer from this fear of silence. So what I want to do is we're going to have a little bit of fun before we get serious. I found an online test because I wanted to see how afraid of silence was I, all right? So I took this online test. I'm just going to give you one of the ten questions, all right? So here you go. Whichever, there's no right or wrong answer. So uh, whichever one you are will kind of indicate your level of comfort with silence. You're going out to eat with a group of acquaintances. When the conversation goes dead quiet, what do you do? A, you look around nervously, hoping someone else will pipe up and cut the awkwardness. B, you think of an engaging question to ask the person next to you. C, you take a moment to quietly enjoy your food that has just arrived, allowing others to do the same. Or D, you instantly start telling your go-to favorite story to try to lighten things up. <laughs> all right, so four varying degrees of comfortability with silence, all right? Any, now, let's, let's take this test. Any A's out there, raise your hand. You would look around nervously hoping someone else would deal with it. Anyone? All right, we got a, a couple. All right, any B's out there? You think of an engaging question to ask the person next to you. Okay, a couple of those. Any C's? Take a moment to quietly enjoy your food. Yes, they're the, they're the people that are comfortable with silence right there. Or D, instantly start telling your go-to story to liven things up. Any Ds? Got a couple Ds. Alex Witten, Carter Witten, two Wittens are Ds. Well, this is fascinating, but I actually went and looked at a couple studies, and I found one study of 580 undergraduates, all right? Over a six-year period, they were kind of shown that, that background media noise is creating a generation of people who actually are afraid of silence. There was another study that was even better from the University of Virginia where college students were asked to sit in a room for 6 to 15 minutes and do absolutely nothing. No music, no phone, no nothing. 6 to 15 minutes. Then the participants were given the option to self-administer a shock instead of having to sit alone with their thoughts. This is really good stuff. The results are shocking. 60% of men and 25% of women chose to electrocute themselves rather than sit 
for 6 to 15 minutes in silence. All right, that's the fun. <laughs> I don't know how shocking yourself is fun. I, I find it funny. Good Friday hardly feels good. Good Friday is the day that kind of shows us the depths of what human beings are capable of. And maybe the worst part about this space between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is the silence. That God was seemingly silent for three days. And when you think about it, right, Jesus cries out to God from the cross, silence. When Jesus' friends and family suffered this real pain and loss, silence. When people demanded an answer, some were demanding justice, there was just silence. This was the end, it was the end of hope. There was only this three-day period of silence. And so Joseph of Arimathea had quietly made the funeral arrangements for Jesus taking his body and laying it in his own family tomb, at his own expense. Uh, another maybe familiar Bible character, Nicodemus, bought the burial spices, and together these two men uh, quickly lay Jesus in the tomb. No one had expected anything more from him. This was supposed to be the end. Pilate and Herod had seen to that. But God was at work. Something was happening. And Easter... Sunday says that God was apparently not done speaking yet. And so we're going to hear from Matthew's account of God breaking the silence. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. The pain of this three days of silent suffering is about to give way to shouts of hallelujahs and joys that Christ, who had been crucified, has been raised. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men, but the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The Gospel of the Lord. And so we have Mary Magdalene and this mysterious other Mary. They go to Jesus' graveside at first light on the first day of the week. And they go to see the grave, the final resting place of the Lord. And they're simply two mourners who just want to be near, want to be close to Jesus. They want to pour out their grief in peace and quiet. But as we've seen, peace and quiet is not what they got. Instead, they felt the earthquake under them. This messenger of God shows up. The stone at the tomb's entrance has been rolled away. 
And there's no doubt that Matthew wants us to experience the irony here that the man that was inside the tomb, the one who was supposed to be dead, is very much alive. The two guards on the outside of the tomb guarding the entrance who were very much alive are the ones who appear to be dead. And so I love this uh, cartoon. What do you mean that wasn't you who just said good morning? (laughs) Well, I found this uh, famous story that took place. One of our Ivy League schools where a student had actually walked up to a a blackboard and they had written God is dead, signed Friedrich Nietzsche, that remained on the board for a while until another student walked by and added something to it and he wrote, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. <laughs> well, there's no eyewitnesses to the accounts of the actual raising itself, but there's some excellent historical evidence. The great reformer John Calvin said that he came out of the tomb without witnesses so that the empty place would be the first sign that he was alive. And so imagine the surprise of these two mourners and, of course, the guards at the tomb. Of course, they're afraid. Who wouldn't be afraid? But the angel quells their fears. He says, I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he's been raised as he said. And we're supposed to recall those times when we know at least three of them that I can think of off the top of my head where Jesus told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He said he must suffer, he must die, and then he must be raised. And so, in the first century, this amazing detail, right, that the first people to witness the resurrected Christ were these two women. But in the first century Jewish culture, the testimony of women wasn't even accepted in courts of law. And yet, their testimony is critical to God's story here with the resurrection it remains consistent in all four Gospels. And when they met the resurrected Christ, they took a hold of his feet, the very feet that were pierced with large spikes just a few days before, and they worshipped him. Well, in this simple phrase, Jesus' dual nature shines through. He has feet. Ghosts don't have feet. Remember Casper, the friendly ghost? No feet. (laughs) Jesus is truly human. But their worship of him indicates that he's more than just an ordinary man. He is to be worshipped and adored as only God can. And so some of you know that I'm I'm a history fan. I was a history major. I thought I would be teaching history at this point. That didn't happen. And while science studies the repeatable history, studies things that are unrepeatable. Historians don't have any problem whatsoever with unrepeatable events. These are things that happen every single day. And so historians declare that these one-time events really did happen, even though they're not things that we can repeat in a laboratory. And so history is full of unlikely things that happen only once. And so the gospel writers, they ask us to consider this one all-important word. And the word is raised. And the gospel writers ask us to consider this word and then draw our appropriate conclusions. The angel invited the women to come and see the place where he lay. And so we too are invited. Invited by the gospel writer to come and to have a look 
for ourselves. It's an invitation to do our own inquiry, our own research. Now, of all the historical evidence, of which there's actually quite a bit, there's a couple things that I personally find really compelling. And they are the acts of Christian mercy and also some of the early Christian martyrs. And so I'm going to tell two quick stories. And the first is a story of martyrdom. In the year 320, in modern-day Turkey, there were 40 Roman soldiers who were martyred for their faith. These men were stripped of their clothes. They were placed on a frozen lake in the middle of winter. You can see even in the iconography, there's there's a bath inside that little bathhouse. And there was a warm bath prepared for any one of those 40 men who would renounce their faith in the risen Christ. One soldier took a warm bath. And 39 chose to freeze to death. If God had remained silent, all 40 of those men would have taken a warm bath on that day. Equally compelling in my mind is the evidence of the transformed lives of the living, those people who have heard God speak and have chosen to give their lives away for the sake of others. And there are a million examples of this, but I love the one what I read about in 165 was the first epidemic of smallpox. About 100 years later, uh, another great plague came, and no one knew how to treat these afflicted people. Most people just fled and left. The ones who decided to stay cut off all contact with all people. And at the first signs of any symptoms, the afflicted were just thrown out into the streets. But Christians had an answer. They alone took appropriate action. Christians actually decided to stay and to care for the sick. Their acts of loving mercy saved countless lives. And this is the most interesting part to me, that the surrounding pagan culture was taking notice. They actually called these Christian caregivers miracle workers. Why would people willingly take on the diseases of others and care for the sick if Christ had not been raised? Why would the people of this church give up their Tuesday afternoons to tutor kids at Walnut? Why would people of this church walk to stop hunger? Why would we give food and shelter to the homeless? Why would we prepare these emergency kits for kids being ripped out of their homes and entering into foster care. And the only answer that makes any sense to those of us in this place is that God has spoken, that Christ has indeed been raised, that on that first Easter Sunday, God broke the silence. And so as Christ has served us and offered himself for the world, the living Christ sends his church, people like you and me, sends us on mission. Jesus repeats the command given by the angel. He gives the women their task. He says, go and tell my brothers, the disciples, that they will see me in Galilee. These women were given the distinction of being the first to encounter the risen Christ. Now they have the privilege of reconstituting the disciples. They had a job to do with the resurrection of Jesus. The mission of the church is infused with new life. These Disciples still mattered, they were still important, they still had work to do. And it's interesting that Matthew's Gospel doesn't end with a resurrection account, it actually ends with the commissioning of the disciples, where he says, go to the ends of the earth and proclaim that God 
has broken the silence, that Jesus has been raised. And so I love the line, come to Galilee, it's Jesus' call to follow him. It's a call to discipleship. And when we experience the apparent silence of God in life's more painful places, we remember that Jesus has endured all that we have, including the terrible, lonely silence. And when we sit at the foot of the cross, we acknowledge that the Lord understands our pain and suffering. And that Easter is a day where our suffering is replaced with joy. It's a day where God has spoken a new word. That word is risen. In that word risen, a whole new world of possibility has been opened up. And so Resurrection says that God's story is still being written today by people like you and like me through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we want to be a church that continues to write God's story with our lives. And so as a new church, we have a job to do. The job hasn't actually changed at all since that very first day of new creation. Run quickly and tell everyone that you know that God has indeed spoken a new word, that Christ isn't dead, that he has risen.